0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, We had a massive storm came through in the middle of the night. Uh, there's a lot of trees down all over the roads in Sacramento and Yuba City, a lot of power lines down, um, a lot of people without power. Uh, so pray for our community. Uh, we're doing uh, services live uh, here, live streaming for those that can't make it out of their homes. Uh, so if you are joining us, uh, we welcome you today. Uh, the scripture says, don't avoid the gathering of yourselves together. Uh, and we thank God that we can gather ourselves together by uh, the means that he has provided. So welcome uh, today. Uh, Let's uh, come into God's presence with prayer. Our holy and almighty God, out of the depths we cry to you. If you counted our sins and iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. When we are at our lowest and most miserable, you are there. When we are in the depths making our bed in the grave, you are there. We cannot flee from you, for wherever you go, your goodness and your mercy pursue us wherever we go. And Father, lift up our hearts today. Strengthen us with your joy. Establish our steps. Bring our wandering children home. Protect us from our own foolishness. Direct our eyes to where you sit, enthroned in the heavens, reigning over all things for the good of the church. When we falter, hold us up. When we wander, bring us back. When we are downhearted, remind us of hope. Above all, teach us to hallow and magnify your holy name. Teach us to decrease that you might increase. Shine brightly through all of our words and all of our works so that those who see us will know that we serve the living God. Father, we pray that you would protect our community, protect the crews that are uh, getting the power turned on and are working with the power lines, protect the first responders and those without power, Uh, provide for our needs, for those that are getting the trees out of the roads and uh, responding to emergencies. We pray for your protection. We have prayed for rain. All the forecasts have called for a continued drought over the winter. And yet, the rain and the wind is in your hand, and you had your own plans. So we thank you for that. Provide for us our daily bread. Teach us to be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity, and to trust you for the future. Lead us to quiet waters. Give us wisdom, for we are foolish. We need your strength each moment. Give us rest, we pray, in the scurrying of life and the frantic toil, that occupies our minds, teach us to sit quietly like weaned children on their mother's lap. Let that gospel of rest and peace spread like wildfire throughout the world. Give your servants boldness to speak wherever they are, for we know that proclaiming rest and liberty from sin and misery arouses the hatred of the world. For there is much money and power to be made when people are fearful and frantic. So give boldness in the face of enemies. Give clarity of thought, courage, conviction. May Christ shine brightly throughout the world. Give hope and light in dark places. Give us courage to boldly conquer and endure this warfare to the end. Walk with us through the darkness and give light in the valleys. Set a table for us when we are frantic and afraid. Bless the reading and and the preaching of your word today. Guide my lips and give us open hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked uh, briefly at Psalm 68, which is the psalm of the king coming into his kingdom. We talked about the message of the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ has conquered all of his enemies. Uh, In Psalm 68, we concluded last week uh, with verse uh, number Uh, 17 and 18 uh, where it says the chariots of God are 20,000 even thousands of thousands the Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place and then he says you have ascended on high you have led captivity captive you have received gifts among men even from the rebellious that the Lord God might dwell there. The scripture teaches us that Christ is plundering the kingdom of the devil, uh, that he has conquered sin and misery. He rose from the dead and he is the rightful king. Uh, Paul takes that verse, uh, verse 18 of Psalm 68, and applies it to Christ ascending into heaven. And then he says, how can the Lord ascend unless he first descend into the lower parts of the earth? And so as we go through the gospel of Luke, we see Jesus heading to Jerusalem. He is descending into death and hell uh, in order to conquer. And then he will ascend into heaven and plunder the kingdom of the devil, leading captivity captive, as scripture teaches. In Ephesians, 5, Paul, or in Ephesians 4, Paul applies this uh, to uh, the conversion of the souls and the gathering together of the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers as a gift to the church, captured from the world through the proclamation of the gospel. So this is the context of Luke chapter 20. Uh, if you'll turn with me, my text is Luke 20 verses 1 through 8. Jesus has, a, Jesus has a ridden into Jerusalem. We saw a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he has ridden into Jerusalem as a king coming into his kingdom. Uh, and the, uh, the city welcomes him as the king. Uh, Therefore, it arouses the fury and the envy of the chief priests and the scribes. And thus we come to Luke chapter 20. So Luke 20 verses 1 through 8, reading from the New King James. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. Uh, Side note here, remember the proclamation of the gospel is the proclamation of the conquering king. And Christ is declaring his own gospel. Now, as he's preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he that gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, If we say, From heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, From men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In the context, Jesus has entered Jerusalem in triumph. He's entered into his temple, as the prophets have foretold. This was an affront to the ruling class of Jerusalem. From the very beginning, true religion has always been twisted and used by power-hungry men to amass power to themselves and make themselves rich. From the very beginning, Cain and Abel, there was a conflict there over the sacrifice, where Cain was angry because God accepted Abel's sacrifice instead of Cain's. The fact is, if Jesus is the only king, if he's our only mediator, if he is our only prophet, then men lose their control over others. We know in Genesis 1, men and women were created to have dominion over all creation. But sin twisted that dominion, and so now men lust to have dominion over each other. And they will use religion to do it. They won't just say, I'm going to take power over you now. What they say is... You have a need that only they can fill. They say, I can give you purpose. I can make you acceptable to God. I can show you how to gain God's approval for a price. And then the flip side of that is, don't you dare disobey God's anointed, or you will incur God's wrath, and thus power is usurped over the people of God. The Sanhedrin, referred to here as the chief priests and the scribes, they were the ruling class in Jerusalem, They kept a close eye on who had the power to teach and who did not, for they understood that there's a lot of power in words. That power of words can be used for good, to build people up, to bring them to God, to encourage, strengthen, and help one another. The scripture has much to say about the power of words to do good. God even created the world with his word, and he is redeeming us with his word. There's a great deal of power in words. But Satan twists the power of words, and they can be used to tear down and attack and destroy and to lie and to cheat and to steal. They can be used for good, in other words, or they can be used for ugly. The Sanhedrin knew the power of the words, and they knew that in order to keep their power, they had to keep a close tab on who used words. No one can just teach in the temple. They have to be approved and appointed by the powers that be. It sounds good on the surface. Words are powerful. We need to make sure that God's people aren't being led astray. Only godly men should be teaching the people. That is true. But God has a way of bypassing the decisions of power brokers. What does God do when the power brokers also turn out to be wolves? What he does in Scripture is he sends prophets. He bypasses the official channels, for he can do that. He is God. He calls prophets directly. But sin can even twist that into an ugly thing. A man might, for example, declare himself to be a prophet, called directly by God and therefore unaccountable to any authority that is in place. And that also can be very ugly and cult-like. So God put in safeguards to be followed by the faithful. We are to have discernment. We're to test the spirits, the scripture says. We're not to follow just anyone who claims to be a prophet If God calls a prophet to prophesy, he will give that prophet the authority to do the job. This is taught in Deuteronomy 13, where Moses gives the instructions on how to test true prophets and false prophets. The prophet's words were to be judged by the words of Moses, for God does not lie. Anyone that comes along and says, well, what he said before was false, this is true, was to be condemned as a liar. Paul, the apostle, gave the Thessalonians instructions on how to judge those traveling preachers who went from place to place. He acknowledged that some were good and called by God, and some were wolves. So he tells the church to test them. He says to hold fast to what is good and resist evil, no matter what form it takes. I'm saying all of this because the question, by what authority do you do these things, is a valid one, and it should be asked By the people of God. This is the question that the Sanhedrin ask Jesus. They do have a lot of power. They even have the power, as we will see in a few weeks, to twist the arms of the Roman governor. And Jesus, by entering his temple and cleansing it, has just challenged that authority. For if Jesus is truly prophet, priest, and king with the power to forgive sins, with the power to cleanse the temple, if he's truly the anointed one of God, the Christ, then the Sanhedrin will lose their authority and the source of their income and the power over people, and their entire system falls. They can't have that. It's one of the guise of being shepherds to the people. They confront Christ. It's a demand that on the surface is a good one. By what authority do you do these things? The language indicates when it says they confronted him that they came suddenly, dropped the question on him quickly, hoping to catch him stumbling on his words. But we know that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes, had an ulterior motive. They pretended a great zeal for protecting the integrity of the teachers. But he had another. they had another motive. Their problem was they had decided months ago that Jesus must go. He ate and drank on the Sabbath. He ate and drank with publicans and sinners on the Sabbath. He eats and drinks with the others. He talks to women. If he is Messiah, then everything that... I think and know about myself and about God is wrong. I must bend the knee and cast my crown at his feet. For Christ will have no rivals. And that the natural heart cannot do. The Sanhedrin would not give up their authority and their power any more than the rich young ruler would give up his riches. And so the Sanhedrin had already decided that Christ must go. They said, we, we, if he keeps on, we'll lose our place in our nation. He's a threat to our way of life. When he broke the Sabbath according to their rules, they decided that he needed to go for being a Sabbath breaker, that he would bring God's wrath down on the people for not upholding the law in their view. But their problem was, that if they accused him of breaking the Sabbath and demanded that the Roman governor put him to death, the Roman governor would insist on knowing the details. They would ask, well, what did he do on the Sabbath that was a violation? And then they would have to prove in a court of law that Jesus healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, healed the lame man, and that they did not want to do. If they accuse him of something else, The other problem was the people would riot for all the people were flocking to hear his words. Chapter 19 of Luke ends with they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. The Greek says literally they were hanging on his every word and so they could do nothing. So they need to find a way to accuse him that will also discredit him in front of all the people so they can denounce him to Pilate and put him to death. And they want to avoid a riot. So now, in Luke, they are springing question after question on him in order to catch him in his words, find him in a fault, and find something to accuse him of. But there is something else going on. God's word is being fulfilled by these wicked men. And they didn't even know it. When the Passover lamb was brought into the city, the chief priests were to examine it for five days and declare it without blemish or without spot. The day of the triumphal entry, Jesus was entering as a king, but he was also entering in as the lamb of God on the day the Passover lambs were brought into the city. And the chief priests were examining him as the Lamb of God, even though they didn't know it. Back to the question of authority. That question is a valid one. Jesus cleansed the temple, taught with authority. He didn't say, thus saith the Lord, as all the other prophets did. He said, I say unto you, verily, verily, I declare to you. This is the authority of God himself. So the question is this, did he just appoint himself? Was he a self-proclaimed prophet? We know that he wasn't ordained by the ordinary schools or the ordinary channels. He did not have the approval or the certificates of the accrediting bodies. And so where did he get his authority from? Who appointed him? Who gave him the authority to cleanse temples and teach in the temple of God? And as I've said, it's a trick question. The chief priests knew that he did not have the accreditation that was the normal route. He didn't attend the schools of the prophets and he didn't go to the proper schools of the rabbis. The only other answer was God appointed me directly. The Sanhedrin, of course, would accept a prophet who was ordained directly by God, the scripture was full of them, in theory. But, of course, they knew that if God ordained a prophet, that prophet would keep their rules and their Sabbath day. And so they already knew that God did not ordain Jesus directly because Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath day. They said if he was from God, he would keep the Sabbath. And so they got him in a trick question. If he said, I got it from men, they said, well, where's your certificate of authenticity? Where's your ordination? What school did you attend? And if he said it was directly given to me by heaven then they could punish him for blasphemy, or at least discredit him before the people. But Jesus sees through them. It was common in discourse to ask questions back to clarify. It was important to clarify the question, make sure you're answering the right one, and so questions were perfectly acceptable. And so Jesus, following this pattern, says, I have a question for you. You answer this question, I'll answer yours. By what authority did John... Baptize. Was it from heaven or from men? We met John in the first chapter of Luke. The Gospel of Luke opens with the account of John. We read about his miraculous birth when Elizabeth was past her prime. We read about the public announcement by an angel in the temple of God. We read about how he spent years in the wilderness until the word of the Lord comes to him. It says in Luke chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to John. And he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he baptized. Baptism was a ritual symbolizing cleansing from sin. And he baptized to point to the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit as he testified himself. The Pharisees were okay with the idea of cleansing. It was part of their rituals. They understood that. When a proselyte was made and converted to Judaism, they went through the ceremonial cleansing. Mark talks about large pots of water that were used for the cleansing ceremonies of the Pharisees. As long as the cleansing was for other people. The problem with John was John preached that everybody needed to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So they rejected John's message. But the authority of John was undisputed. He could not have had a more solid set of credentials. Not only was his mission announced from the temple, but he fulfilled a long line of centuries of prophets. Moses spoke of prophets to come. He spoke of God sending more prophets, all revealing more and more until it culminated in that prophet, the one who would come and directly speak the words of God. And as the centuries went by after Moses, God's plan of salvation was more and more revealed, each generation building on the previous generation, none contradicting the previous but adding more and more. 600 years before Christ, the voice in Isaiah cries out, prepare the way for the Lord. And when they asked John, who are you? He said, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He was the culmination of the law and the prophets. All of it pointed to the penultimate fulfillment The penultimate means the one before, the ultimate. The next to the last one. All of it pointed to the final fulfillment who is Christ. And the one before the final fulfillment was John. If John is the penultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament, if he is the one, the voice crying in the wilderness, then there can only be one ultimate fulfillment. That was the one whom John baptized. And John saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on him. And the voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that voice and that dove were public. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew. John's authority to baptize didn't come from men. John also did not get his diploma at the right school. Or get the approval of the right people. In fact, we know a delegation came from the Pharisees to find out why he was doing it. They asked him the same question. By what authority are you baptizing? He said, are you the Christ? Are you that prophet? He said, no. Well, who are you? And John pointed to the Old Testament. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Under the guise of purity, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes were really trying to hold on to their power. They couldn't have a Rambo without any accountability, especially one who taught that everyone, even the Pharisees, needed to repent as if they were ordinary sinners. But the rest of the people knew a prophet when they saw one. They flocked to him. They heard the voice. They heard his preaching. They knew the authority of God coming from him. They heard the voice of the shepherd in John. They remembered the events of his birth at the temple and they repented and were baptized by the thousands. The nations flocked to John. The next to the last fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And then the day came when he points to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what was involved in Jesus' question. And the chief priests and the scribes knew it. So they huddled together. Notice how the tables are turned. All of a sudden, they're the ones on trial. That tends to happen when you question God. They're on the hot seat. They know that if they say John's baptism was from heaven, Jesus would say, well, why didn't you believe him then? They knew that John pointed to Jesus Jesus knew that they didn't allow John to baptize them. So he said, if you say, they said, if we say from heaven, Jesus will ask, well, why didn't you let him baptize you? Why didn't you believe him when he spoke to you? Why didn't you come to me? But if they said from earth, meaning if he was just self-appointed, they would have been accusing John of being a false prophet. And that would arouse the fury of the people. It might actually lead to their stoning. It's interesting how the leaders of the Jews, the religious experts, those in charge of the temple worship, were not interested in truth. Here they're confronted with a truth that if they acknowledge this truth, it will shatter everything. It will shatter their status quo. It will shatter their income levels. It will shatter everything they believe about themselves. So they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in keeping things the same. They're interested in keeping the status quo. But the gospel, the announcement of the kingdom, disrupts. The declaration of the conquering king is designed to turn lives upside down and to plunder the kingdom of the devil. The beginning of Luke, both Mary and Zechariah testify in their songs that the gospel makes kings into beggars. Sends the rich away, but feeds the hungry. Gives good news to the poor in spirit, but to the proud it's deadly. The rich are made low and the poor are exalted and everything is turned upside down. The gospel is great news to the poor in spirit, but for those who love money and power, who lust after the good old days when everyone knew who was in charge, those didn't want anything to do with it. The scribes weren't looking for truth. They were looking to keep their power, keep their position, keep everything the same, and keep their heads. The truth is that John's message and his baptism were from God. Luke says in chapter 3, "...the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness." He preached a baptism of repentance and the remission of sins. And then he says, as it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough way smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The world order is turned upside down when the gospel is proclaimed. John, his ministry was announced in the temple foretold by Isaiah. He came with the spirit and power of Elijah and the world knew it. But if the chief priests and the scribes admitted it, they would have to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. And if they did that, their whole world would collapse and their system would be dismantled. And how often in our churches today, Do we see ministers who will not speak the whole truth because they're afraid of the collapse of the system? If they speak about the uh, free offer of the gospel, if they speak about justification by faith alone, they know they will lose their power and their hold over people. Just like the Sanhedrin. They go away sorrowful for they are very rich. They couldn't confess that truth. So they took the coward's way out. When all else fails, plead, no, plead ignorance. Well, we don't know who's telling the truth here. We don't know anything about that. We, we can't say anything. We, we don't have omniscience. We can't predict any of this. We don't know who's speaking the truth. There's no way to prove this or to prove that. God hasn't given me all knowledge. Well, there are several points of view on that one and all the muddled doublespeak that liars are so good at. And that's what they say. Well, we don't know whether it came from heaven or from men. It was the only answer they could do. But in saying that, they gave their answer. Jesus knew it. He knew he didn't need to say anything else. He made his point. I spoke last week about the gospel and what it is, the declaration of the conquering king. He's won the victory and is now taking the spoils. That announcement turns everything upside down. It makes the comfortable uncomfortable. It makes the proud angry, especially when that gospel goes to those that they determine are not worthy. But for those who are dying, who are hopeless, who are downhearted, who are discouraged, who are poor in spirit. It is life and hope and courage that Christ has conquered. Therefore, we leap for joy. He's won the victory and now he commands allegiance. He promises himself. He gives eternal life. He promises victory over sin and the power of the devil. He promises wisdom to all who ask, the forgiveness of sins, declares himself to be our prophet, priest, and king, and you still need to ask this question. By what authority does he make such claims? Who is he? The entire scripture from beginning to end is given to answer that question. As Jesus said, it testifies of him. Testify is a legal term. It's bearing witness in a court of law. God cannot lie. The scripture from beginning to end is full of history, miracles, prophecies, genealogies, all for one purpose, to answer the question, by what authority does Jesus promise eternal life? By what authority does he command allegiance? By what authority does he cast out demons? By what authority can he make you such a tremendous promise? The forgiveness of sins and restored fellowship with God. Does he have the power and does he have the authority to do that? And scripture from beginning to end says emphatically, yes. The part of the proclamation of the gospel is to show how every part of the Bible is for the purpose of revealing Christ, showing his authority and power to do as he promised and to command faith and trust. The history of the kings of Israel shows God doing exactly what God said he would do. And in the fullness of time, God becomes flesh and does exactly what God says he will do. The genealogies show that Jesus was of the flesh of Abraham, true man and true God. The heir to the throne of David, just as it was foretold. The New Testament starts with the genealogy, which is given to us for the purpose of showing that Christ has the authority to do what he says he will do. The miracles that were done could only have been done by the creator and sustainer of the universe. The Apostle John says there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. And the ultimate mark of his authority, he rose from the dead. Lots of prophets can say that they have the key to eternal life, but only one rose from the dead. So Paul, when he speaks of his authority, writing to the Romans, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was foretold by the prophets, declared by God, to be who he said he was when God raised him from the dead. And therefore he is worthy of our allegiance, our trust, and our hope. And as the scripture says, whoever believes on him will never be ashamed. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would ease our worries and our fears and cause us to rest in you and in your promises, for you are willing and able to do all that you have promised us. So renew that hope. Give us steadfast courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for joining us. Have a blessed week.